0: Hi, and welcome to episode 11 of Basha's Thoughts. Today we're going to be talking about defense narrative formation. You know, the little stories that we tell ourselves to protect ourselves from maybe things that are not so good that we're doing. I was listening to Barbara Freezer on Joe Rogan and she was talking about slavery. She was actually talking about a lot of very interesting things. I'll leave a link in the description for you. But the part about the slavery narrative was especially interesting because for most people today, if we listen to it, the narrative that people who engaged in slave trade had, that narrative seems so obviously wrong It's practically impossible for us to even consider the idea of someone actually believing in it. And yet, I think that people actually did believe in it. So what kind of a narrative was that? Well, this was the end of the 1700s and it was an era where Britain was very big when it comes to slave trade. So this was a very important thing for them. When the abolitionists wanted to regulate slave trade, that was a big threat for them and their profit. And so they were able to come up with a narrative that would help them look at themselves as merciful. The British wanted to see themselves as civilized, as doing the right thing, as being merciful. And so the narrative was a rescue narrative. So this is what the British actually did, if you were wondering. They went to Africa, and there they found these Africans who were marketing themselves, who were wanting to go with them, and who were actually showing off their fitness levels so that they would be chosen to be taken to the other world, to the new world. Then uh, they were taken on a boat, And the passage was quite enjoyable, actually, because there was singing and dancing and clapping. And then they would arrive in the New World, where they basically arrived in paradise, because now they would be forever taken care of. It was a welfare state. They would never have to worry if they got sick. This would be a forever home to them. And it was, of course, a much better option than staying in Africa, where they probably would have just died from famine or cannibals. So the British were actually the merciful rescuers of the Africans, and were doing the right thing. The abolitionists, on the other hand, and there was a quote from someone saying that the abolitionists, they were shutting the gates of mercy on mankind, So the abolitionists were the brutal ones, and the British were the merciful ones. This seems completely insane to us, and of course it was, and yet I can actually believe that people, some people, actually believed in this. When the stakes are high enough, you may be able to believe in a lot of things that you might not have thought you were able to believe in. It's very interesting because this is an example from history, and it's an example of how you become the hero, you create the hero by creating a narrative for yourself. And a few months back, I was actually able to see the opposite of this narrative play out. And what I mean? I mean the opposite in the sense that I'm living in a region where there are actually people who I have met who were telling me about their grandparents, and their grandparents were actually slaves. So this is something that is very recent in the society around here. So the idea of being used and abused is a very common narrative. It's not one that is made up like the rescue narrative was, it is very actual and very real and quite terrible. So indeed, these people were used, abused, and then later on they were workers or labourers that were used by huge plantation owners and abused by huge plantation owners. So this was indeed a reality in this region. And that narrative still exists, especially among the poor population where they cannot read or write. So let me come to the story. This is just to give you a context for what happened. There was this landowner, not a rich person at all. And uh, this person had a small piece of land that wasn't really producing a lot of things and the landowner wanted to sell the land. But they came across this person who really needed a place to stay. So they said, you know what? If you want to, I have this land and there's this little house on it. If you want to, you can stay there. Then this way you'll have a place to stay. Also, the place will not be abandoned until I find someone to buy the land. This way we both win. And the guy said, yes, that sounds excellent, because, you know, I'm actually a biologist. So this was uh, someone who had already gone to university. Uh, it wasn't someone who, uh, whose ancestors were slaves, actually quite the opposite. And so he said, but right now I, I actually don't have a job. It's like, can I grow something on your land? Because, you know, just for myself, like a garden or some things... And the landowner said, yes, no problem. You can grow anything you want for yourself. And you know what? There's already a bunch of different fruit trees. Whenever the fruits come in season, you can sell them, you can eat them, you can share them with whomever you want. All the profit that you, you get from selling them goes to you. It's all yours to use so that at least you'll have you know, a little bit of food growing for yourself. Great let's do that but then the the guy said but you know what it's really difficult for me i'm not able to find a job right now and that's kind of really tough for me The landowner said you know what let's do the following whenever someone comes over to uh, look at the land i'll let you know and before that maybe you can just you know clean up a little bit i'll i have some machinery I'll teach you how to cut the grass, and uh, you can just cut the grass around the house and at the entrance. You know, not the whole piece of land or anything. Just around here, uh, at the very entrance, because it will make you know a better impression for whoever comes in. And I will pay you for that. Great, awesome. So the landowner actually ended up giving uh, this guy half of their salary every month for these tasks. So this was actually a lot more than they would have paid anyone else to do that. But, you know, it was a good thing. They were helping out the guy, and the guy took the opportunity to study. So he started to study, he got into school, and he became a firefighter. And then he got a job as a firefighter. And uh, this guy was very happy, because now he had this stable job. Uh, He had a place to live, he had land that he could use. Also, there was a time when his dad didn't have a place to stay, so his dad stayed there for six months. His mom didn't know what to do with her dog, so they stayed there for uh, a few years, actually. Four years pass, and the landowner comes and says, hey, I found a buyer for the land. Great news. So this is the perfect situation, because now... I mean, you've got a job, it's easy to find another place. I want to give you 30 days, you know, to find another place to stay. Also, you know, I want to give you the the machinery for um, cutting the grass because I know that it's something that you will want to continue doing with whatever land you will buy in the future. And it's also a security for you because now you can always work as a grass cutter because you have your own machine So if anything should ever come up, you need extra work or something, you'll have this as a security for you. Also, because I've been paying you your electricity, I see that your fridge is really inefficient and uses up a lot of energy. So take my fridge. It's a lot better. I'll leave that to you too. Great. And what do you think the guy says? One would expect the guy to say, well, awesome. Thank you so much. I mean, you've given me four years of, you know, not having to pay rent, uh, being able to grow my own food, um, being able to sell a bunch of things from here. And you've also supported me so that I was able to have some money for other things as well. And I was able to study and become a firefighter. Awesome. Now you're giving me these things. And I mean, my dad was able to live here. So cool. Thank you. No. The guy says, and this is so interesting, the guy says, no, I will not leave the property until you pay me a minimum salary for four years. How so? The landowner asks, how did you come up with that? Well, I've been here for four years. Yes, indeed you have. And the landowner asks, but have you, have I ever told you, you have to work eight hours a day, every day, you have to do this, you have to do that. Have I ever asked that of you? No. Well then, why all of a sudden do you want me to pay four years of salary? How do you figure? And that's interesting, because this guy, as a firefighter, he was actually seeing himself as the right, correct, responsible person. And so this was his way of being responsible and correct because he was surrounded by people who had this narrative of being used by landowners. And so he decided to take that on for himself. And so he went to a lawyer and a lawyer told him, well... If you've been there for four years, we could potentially ask for a salary. We could say that the landowner asked you to work full-time. And we can probably find someone who can be a witness saying that you were there. And so we can probably do this. And the lawyer said that, and of course, this is something that you... Have to do as a man. You have to stand up for yourself. Be a man. These are your rights. Fight for your rights. Be a man. This is very, uh, very good rhetoric to have, especially when you're talking to a military firefighter. And, of course, and this isn't just for you, you have to go to court with this because. You're not just standing up for you and your rights. You're standing up for the rights of everyone else who suffers at the hands of these devils. Yes, um, these devils who gave you a place to stay for four years, who gave you half their salary each month, who you're making now three times what they are making, actually, and who gave your father a place to stay, who gave you land to use. Um, These devils we now have to take to court because of your rights. This was a very interesting narrative to be able to see be played out. Also, in the end, the guy said to the landowner, And... Even if you pay me, I will not leave until you prove to me that you have sold the land. You have to show me the documents that you have sold the land. And the landowner was really perplexed. What does this have to do with anything? Oh, that's because, the guy said, that's because I cannot possibly leave this land abandoned. So... You might be lying to me right now and you haven't actually sold the land and then the land will be abandoned. And the landowner said, you know, even if that were the case, you no know, that would be my problem, really not your problem, and I would solve it. No, I cannot trust you. So that was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing to see how this guy really totally took on that narrative that I believe probably came from way back and from another culture that wasn't even his, but it was still around. And he was around people who were ancestors of those persons. And so he took on that. His perception of what was going on was so totally distorted And his belief that the world is this evil place helped him to create the narrative of him being the victim. So we saw the first story of the slave traders who had the story of themselves as heroes rescuing poor Africans. And now we have the story of the victim. And both can become quite useful narratives when they benefit the person. So, if we see that in history, and sometimes we see that in people around us, <laughs> the next question is, mm, what about me? When do I do that? Do I do that? Well, I don't do that, right? <laughs> but we do, and that's the thing. So, What can we do? Is this something that we can stop doing? How can we recognize whenever we start doing something that is so, sometimes, so far removed from what is actually going on and we start to use and abuse other people? How do we recognize that? Is it possible? It's very interesting because there was this experiment performed with hypnosis where they took people, hypnotized them, And when they were in the state of hypnosis, they told them that later on, whenever someone claps, they will go and open a window and uh, they would take them out of the state of hypnosis and they would then go in for an interview with other people. And in that room, one of the persons at one point would clap and automatically the person who previously had been induced into a state of hypnosis, would go over and open a window. And one of the other persons would ask this person, why did you open the window? And here's the interesting finding. Most people actually had an automatic ready response. They would find a justification. They would find a narrative that fits the story. Some people would say, oh, didn't you just ask me to open it? And others would say, well, it's really hot in here. So most people would already have an answer, even though they actually didn't. And very few people would stop and say, actually, I don't know. I have to think about this, but I don't know. Now that I think about it, that's my answer. I don't know. How can we be these people who are able to think and are not automatically taken in by these defense narratives? Well, there are at least two aspects. So the two things, number one, it has to do with paying attention. It has to do with finding a way of responding and not reacting. It has to do with being present. That's number one. If we learn to be more present in what actually is going on, then we won't rely as much on the automatic mechanisms that we have. Like for driving a car, we already have a series of motions. We know how to do that. We can pay attention to other things. And that's great, because then we can pay attention to what is going on on the street more than how we shift gears, for instance, or what we do with our feet. We don't have to consciously think about that. And so these automatic responses are great, but they are not actually responses. They are reactions. So if we, in our interactions, want to be able to choose our thoughts better, our reactions better. We can respond to them instead of reacting to them. But for that, we need to be present. What does that mean? Well, you might have heard of meditation and Vipassana meditation, for instance. You know, the meditation where you look at what comes up, look at your thoughts, and just observe them. You don't have any comments, you don't have any observations, you don't go into them, you don't follow along on a thought trail. You just notice it, oh look, now I'm thinking about this, and you let it go. Oh, now this is coming up. When you start watching your thoughts like that, you will actually be able to identify the moment before the moment before you get a thought. And very often you will be able to even see from where it originates. You will be able to feel a slight sensation, for instance a slight tension in your belly or in your chest or maybe in your throat. And right after that you will see that a particular type of feeling or emotion or thought comes up. When you're able to do that, you will also be able to choose what to do and what to think and what to feel. This is an awesome tool for being able to be you more. And it has to do with practicing being present. So if you're not present, you're just running on the programs that you have. And then you are very likely to create all sorts of narratives might not have anything to do with what is actually going on here. And the second thing, well, since these narratives are very often defense narratives, well, that means you're trying to defend yourself. So there is a type of threat. What is that threat? Well, very often that threat has to do with your image. It has to do with who you believe you are. I am this kind of person, I have these qualities, and so on. Whenever you identify yourself with anything, even your body, your desires become stronger. And those Mm -hmm. desires tend to take over. And when they take over, they create these narratives so that they can take over so that you can reap the benefits, so that you can believe a narrative that is completely insane, has nothing to do with what is actually going on, but still you can believe it and then you will profit. Your desires are key to this. So what is the idea? How can you work with this? How can you reduce the threat How can you reduce the attraction that your desires might be trying to fire up? Well, it's kind of a very similar process to the meditation that we were talking about. Because the more you practice being the observer of your thoughts, the less you identify as this person, this body, this name, this profession, this whatever it is that tends to be strong for you, this nationality, this skin color, this whatever it is, and you start identifying as the awareness that sees all of this, well then, all of those desires and wants of all of those different perspectives sort of tend to fade away. They don't disappear, but they fade away to the degree that you can make a choice. You can actually look at them and say, you know what? No, this is not for me. This is not beneficial. This is not something I want to act on. And you get that power. You get the power to choose, but only if you are present and if you can identify with who you truly are, which is the awareness and not the person, then you're much better off if you're wanting to try to avoid these situations of creating crazy narratives where you might even be abusing others. Also, anytime you start defending something very strongly, you can ask yourself, what is actually going on? What is at stake here for me? And anytime there's something big at stake, it's good to take a breath, think about it. But just thinking about that, just trying to rethink things whenever there's something at stake for you, it is not very efficient because you will be trying to fool yourself. Just like the people who had undergone hypnosis, they just automatically ran some kind of a program justifying their action. Well, I opened the window because it was hot, even though that had nothing to do with the situation and was not indeed the causal the causal effect <laughs> that led to the opening of the window and yet they might believe it totally. So whenever you're in that situation and you're already believing it, and then you ask yourself, am I creating a narrative? You will say no. This is why practices like presence and practices like identifying as who you truly are are super useful for our everyday life. And especially these kinds of situations of defense narratives so that is it for today thank you so much for listening have a beautiful day i'll talk to you in another podcast take care